Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Last summer, on June 17, 2020, the Quaker Oats Company announced its decision to rename its Aunt Jemima pancake brand after 131 years. Public opinion since the announcement has been mixed. One camp believes that the change is long overdue, while another group believes there's nothing wrong with the brand's namesake. For this special mini-episode, we're going to dig in deeper and look at the history of Aunt Jemima. This case study will examine how something as innocuous as a box of pancake mix represents America's problematic history of racism. I'm Carly. And I'm Marissa. And we're your historians for this episode of Dig. So, before we really get into the history of Aunt Jemima, there'll be some historical overlap with our slavery and soul food episode and our more recent Birth of a Nation episode. Um, If you're an educator, we've created a lesson plan that integrates these three episodes, so be sure to check that out. So, just so you know, that overlap is on purpose, that we can um, use these three things in kind of an educator's um, uh, plan. So just go to our educators tab on our website at digpodcast.org. Also, even more importantly, you probably noticed that there's a new voice here and a new name. Um, that's Carly. She is our intern from, um, St. Mary's university in Texas, and she's joining me. She wrote and produced this episode on her own. So, um, I'm just here and along for the ride to, to be her, her plus one. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Hi. In 1888, entrepreneurs Chris Rutt and Charles Underwood acquired a bankrupt flour mill in St. Joseph, Missouri. Afterwards, they created a product that had never been done before, a pre-made self-rising flour pancake mix. Before this, pre-made mixes weren't really a thing, 
people would make or buy local flour, sugar, corn flour, whatever. So this new pancake mix was hot stuff. It also worked out really well for them because around this time, there were new methods of paper packaging foods. So remember, we're in peak American industrialization at this point in history. This is important for two reasons. First, this allowed Rutt and Underwood to make their pancake mix and then ship it off to sell in other places of the United States. Second, this made it so they were able to put a brand, an image, on their packaging because it was paper. Because paper packaging allowed consumers to recognize their favorite products on the store shelves, Rutt and Underwood were trying to find something eye-catching for their product packaging. They wanted something that conveyed the comfort and warmth of buttery pancakes, right? So one day in autumn of 1889, Rutt was walking through St. Joseph and he stumbled upon a minstrel show. If you're not familiar with minstrel shows... They were pretty popular in the 19th and early 20th century. Minstrel shows included skits, songs, and dances, and they usually focused on a sort of romantic and pastoral view of the quote-unquote Old South. Problem is, with most of these minstrel shows, they glamorized the plantation system and made it look like it was a better time to live in, especially for white people. Simultaneously, minstrel shows also cemented some really negative stereotypes about African Americans. Performers, who were men in painted blackface, would usually do a plantation skit where they'd reenact scenes from the antebellum South. They would sing and dance and basically make fun of enslaved black people. So when Rutt dropped in on the St. Joseph minstrel show, this is where he found the image for his brand, Aunt Jemima which was this well-known Mammy-type character. There's some overlap between reality and fiction with the Mammy stereotype. Um, For example, the Mammy is based off of the very real enslaved Black woman who usually lived inside the plantation home. She cooked, cleaned, and took care of white children. Also, I should mention, the Black character is kind of based off of the Black woman servants, to white employers after emancipation, just to clarify that. I want to I want to jut in and say I think the, a really good um, way to think of this is the, the one scene in Forrest Gump where he talks about Bubba Gump, who starts his shrimp company. Have you seen that movie? Right. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and he talks about how his mom had always been a servant to a white family. She worked in a kitchen, and then his mom before that was a servant to a white family. His mom before that was an enslaved. Um, you know, kitchen uh, slave, right? And it shows how over the years, this black woman had waited on all these white women, and now she had a white cook because she was so rich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I remember that part. So the the mammy stereotype is is this caretaker black woman to white people. And it starts um, within the system of slavery um, and then goes forward with that. Um, yeah, good example. But beyond that, white authors took this real person and created this false and problematic archetype with it. The Mammy was usually depicted as fat, motherly, older, sexless, and bossy. 
Some saw her as this beloved figure, like a second mother to white children. And I'm sure there were some enslaved women who did care for the white children they looked after. But also, they were being oppressed at the same time, you know, so that that relationship was probably complicated. So she was used as the symbol of harmony between black enslaved people and white enslavers. And this is pretty obvious in the famous 1939 film Gone with the Wind, right? Um, The Mammy character, played by Hattie McDonald, really uh, supports and dotes over the white Southern Belle protagonist, Scarlett O'Hara. In the original book by Margaret Mitchell, it says that the Mammy was, quote, devoted to her last drop of blood to the O'Hara's, end quote. For many Southerners, Mammy was the, quote, perfect slave. Yikes. (laughs) I know it sounds really gross. (laughs) So why were people so invested in the Mammy? She was everywhere in the late 19th and early 20th century. In a way the Mammy redeemed Southerners in the institution of slavery. According to Joanne Morgan, quote, seeing the former slave woman visually transformed into a contented servant absolved everyone of past transgressions and future responsibility toward the free people, end quote. Marissa, you and Sarah mentioned in the Slavery and Soul Food episode that in 1923, the Daughters of the Confederacy wanted to erect a statue in remembrance of the Mammy, right? Their request was denied, but it makes sense why they would want to preserve this character, right? The Mammy character is nostalgic. Um, The character made slavery not look so bad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And her job was to comfort and take care of white people, right? However, the Mammy's perceived loyalty and closeness totally ignores the trauma's enslaved people endured within the system of slavery right it makes yeah it makes sense why white people would cling to that character but why it would be so damaging to black freed people Uh um also the mammy character is problematic too because it's dehumanizing According to Rache Richardson, a professor of African-American literature, this stereotype, quote, is premised on notions of black otherness and inferiority that harkens back to a time when black people were thought of and idealized mainly in relation to servant positions, unquote. If you look at the original Aunt Jemima copyright image, we can include that on our website um, if you want to see it. It'll be on the blog. Um, it's a very degrading and cartoonish representation of black people. So back to Aunt Jemima. Rutt finds this idea, this character, at a minstrel show for his pancake mix. And he's like, great. (laughs) People love this character. We're going to play up this whole thing about Southern comfort. And it'll be perfect. Um, They copyrighted the image, as Marissa just mentioned. And Aunt Jemima first appeared on a sack of flour in 1889. Shortly thereafter, Rutt and Underwood sold their company to R.T. Davis. And this guy went even further with the whole brand lore of Aunt Jemima. So when R.T. Davis got the company, he wanted to create a backstory for the brand character. He sent out calls to find the personification of Aunt Jemima. Not a man in blackface, but a, quote, real slave woman. Why? Well, according to historian M.M. Manring, he wanted someone who would, quote, reinforce the product's authenticity and origin as the creation of a real ex-slave, end quote. 
why were they interested in an, quote, authentic enslaved woman to represent their brand? Well, because of the lost cause myth and the idea of the Old South was culturally very popular. The lost cause is shorthand for the lost cause of the Confederacy. It's this shared mythology that the South's involvement in the Civil War was heroic and noble. Southern white writers would create stories and imagery where the white Christian Southerners defended the South from the immoral North, especially to protect vulnerable women. Most importantly, the lost cause myth created this belief that the Civil War had nothing to do with slavery. People who believed in the lost cause usually also believed in a romantic vision of the Old South, one that was lush, leisurely, and comfortable for white people. Some of this is based off of the South's agricultural economy when compared to the North's more industrial economy. And so, R.T. Davis championed the idea of finding a black woman who could play the role of an enslaved person who made this utopia possible again because it was so attractive to white people. Eventually, they found their Aunt Jemima in Nancy Green. At the time of her, quote, discovery, she was 59 years old, and she was employed as a domestic servant in Chicago, and she had been born into slavery on a Kentucky plantation. Green made her Aunt Jemima debut at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago by serving pancakes, singing songs, and telling slave stories. Some of those stories were made up, but some of them actually were based off of Green's own life. Her debut was really successful for the business because merchants who attended the fair placed like 50,000 orders for the pancake <laughs> mix. It also solidified the Aunt Jemima brand. Wow. Um, R.T. Davis's brand manager, Purd Wright, expanded the brand's lore by writing the earliest version of Aunt Jemima's history. It's called The Life of Aunt Jemima, The Most Famous Colored Woman in the World. This pamphlet took stories from Green's actual life and blended them with lost cause type fiction we mentioned earlier. According to this pamphlet, Aunt Jemima's enslaver is this fictional Colonel Higby from Louisiana. And in one of these early stories about her during the Civil War, she apprehends northern troops by offering her famous pancakes. And this gave Colonel Higby a chance to escape. This type of advertising we can see paints the Confederacy as the chivalrous heroes of the Civil War. Although false, it was a pretty effective way of advertising in the early 1900s. Why did advertising have such a hold on this era? Well, first off, marketing really vamped up due to World War I. Propaganda created new advertisement opportunities, and this primed consumers and marketers to see ads on, quote, any surface and every surface and all approaches through the senses, end quote. Additionally, this is when we start to see the beginnings of market research. The J. Walter Thompson Company did a 1912 demographic study entitled Population and Its Distribution that almost 2,000 companies used to understand their consumers. So it's like a very, very early version of like Mad Men. <laughs> they suddenly, they suddenly had these kind of advertising people who, whose job it was to, to think of these things. Yeah, yeah. 
Advertiser James Webb Young was exceptional at understanding consumers. This man was able to create an entire campaign to sell Odorona women's deodorant by playing off of women's insecurities. When he began teaching later in his life, he urged advertisers to focus less on the statistics of consumers, but instead, quote, the types of factors which govern human behavior, the mores, the folkways, the custom, and the fashions, end quote. After Odorono, Young went on to work for Aunt Jemima because of his understanding of the Southern, quote, folkways, like a desire for a, quote, simpler time and Southern luxury. Many of his advertisements focused more on reconciliation between the North and South rather than the restitution towards Black people and their enslavement. According to M.M. M. Mannering, Young South was a place where white people celebrated over good food, where North and South came together over coffee and pancakes, and where white labor was erased by the picture of black men and women bringing plates to the tables, end quote. Young depicted the Old South agriculture system as a lush, quote, garden of Eaton. Get it? Like, not Eaton, but like Eaton, like I'm eating food. <laughs> Um, with Young's expert, it's a, it's a good one, I, I guess. Um, with Young's expertise, products like Baker's Coconut and Maxwell House Coffee capitalized on the perceived abundance and luxury of living in the American South. Baker's Coconut had this whole campaign about the coconut man, where in the old days, you could go into town and get the fresh, delicious coconut. And they found that when they marketed their coconut as southern style, as opposed to something like premium shred or fresh grated, they sold more, especially in northern states. Their big slogan was, until today, the South alone could have it. So why were early 20th century consumers in love with the Southern nostalgia. Well, it's important to remember that this was peak Jim Crow, where segregation and certain laws created a greater us versus them mentality between white and black Southerners. In Elizabeth and Averill's Birth of a Nation episode, they talked about how the Daughters of the Confederacy succeeded in retelling the story of the Civil War and antebellum South in textbooks, from a lost cause point of view. So not only was the lost cause myth embedded in American culture, it was also prevalent in lawmaking and public education. In 1903, the R.T. Davis Company was renamed Aunt Jemima Mills. So they're really committing to this bit now, um, I guess you could say, because they're throwing everything else out and that's what they're called. Um, they also began a 1906 coupon promotion that also fleshed out more of the lore of Aunt Jemima. If you send in, quote, three box tops and 16 cents or four box tops and a dime, end quote, you could receive an Aunt Jemima rag doll. I don't know, it just does not seem like that good of a deal, but okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> they also made ragdolls for her fictional husband, Uncle Mose, and for her two children, Diana and Wade. We should note that the original ad campaign used racial slurs to describe Aunt Jemima's children. We're not going to say it here, but it's there and it's not great. Let's talk more about historical criticisms of Aunt Jemima. In 1918, black journalist Cyril V. Briggs was the editor of the New York Crusader, and he said that the depiction of Aunt Jemima represented, quote, ugliness, depravity, and subservience, end quote. 
very similar to what we talked about in those minstrel shows. And he called upon his readership, especially fellow black people, to boycott the brand. Keeping along with timeline here, in 1925, Quaker Oats bought the company. So it was still called Aunt Jemima Mills, but it was like a sub-company under Quaker Oats. Obviously, Briggs' remarks weren't enough to stop the brand from growing, although it should be noted that people didn't like it back then either. Yeah, I think that's super important. So it's not... There's a lot of like, oh my god, cancel culture. They're coming for they're coming for Uncle Ben and Aunt Jemima kind of thing. Um, no, this has always been a problem. It's just that no one cared enough until recently to address the problem. Um, it's one of my biggest pet peeves is when people are like, oh, kids these days or things these days, and it's like, no, this has been going on for a really long time. You just didn't know about it. That that's the difference. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, here's another example. So in Paul K. Edwards' 1932 study about African-American consumers, he found that black consumers liked it when advertisements featured black people because they were inclusive. There was one huge exception, though. When it came to advertisements like Aunt Jemima's, black consumers overall didn't like how Aunt Jemima represented black people. And this was a fairly broad study. It included black men and women, and the study included black people from different levels of wealth and education. Someone said that the image, quote, played upon ideas of black people in slavery too much, end quote. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Another comment, and um, this is my favorite, quote, I positively hate this illustration, end quote. I get it. I also hate it. So we can see early on that many black people didn't like the Aunt Jemima brand. This, this, this whole being unhappy with this is not something new. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Aunt Jemima's persona remained steady from the mid to late 20th century. From 1955 to 1970, Disneyland, of all places. <laughs> um, Disneyland's never done anything racist, right? Not, never. Not at all. <laughs> even um, So Disneyland even operated an Aunt Jemima's Pancake House. It also had an Aunt Jemima character there, very similar to what was done at the 1893 exposition. She had a costume, of course, and she also sang, danced, and served food. Oh, so it's just so weird that that... that was an idea that sounded like a good idea. <laughs> yeah, so, and they were just chill about it. Right, it's just, it's, it was a different time. Um, during the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, the NAACP called upon consumers to boycott the brand. In one instance in 1956, the Springfield, Illinois NAACP chapter was able to get the Florence Gas Range to cancel a live Aunt Jemima performance. But when looking at the press coverage of this event, a lot of local newspapers criticized the NAACP because Aunt Jemima seemed like a really trivial matter to them. And it was kind of this attitude, it's like, oh, well, if this is what you're going to be protesting, then uh, if you have a problem with something dumb like Aunt Jemima, then really black people don't have it all that hard, really. Right. Um, I can definitely see some of that attitude today. Like it's a way of sort of dismissing and gaslighting people when they say, hey, this is a problem. And you say, well, that's not nearly that big of a problem. Consider this or whatever. It's it happens a lot, I think, with um, like during the Trump presidency, not to, I don't know, go there, but there, you know, people would, people would complain a lot about Trump's policies and things like that. 
And then people who were supporters of Trump would say, what? That's nothing. Look at all this child trafficking going on. You know, that kind of thing. And it's like, yeah, child trafficking is f***ing awful. But um, so can th- this other stuff can also be awful. You know? Yeah. Um, it's sort of a way of minimizing people's uh, concerns. Yeah. And it's like a it's it's a symptom of a larger issue, right? It's all an issue, right? And so the fact that people were upset with it then and are upset with it now, like, it, it's all an issue. It's not, it doesn't minimize the fact that it's a problem. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. In 1968, Quaker Oats responded to criticisms about Aunt Jemima by slimming down her figure and making her look younger, which... Okay, whatever. Oh, problem solved. <laughs> She's hot now. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, th- there's things about that, but anyway. Um, they also replaced her kerchief with a headband. <laughs> also, problem solved. <laughs> People satisfied with these changes believed that Quaker Oats differentiated Aunt Jemima enough from slavery. For example, William Raspberry in 1977 said the terms aunt and uncle were no longer terms of endearment for enslaved people, right? So therefore, Aunt Jemima's wasn't offensive anymore. <laughs> but again, there were lots of people, black people, like the writer and historian Vertime Smart Grosvenor, who went on a 1980 public radio program to say the Quaker Oats company should permanently retire Aunt Jemima. It's like, I don't, like all these white people being like, it's not that much of a problem. Like, it's like nobody asked you. Like, <laughs> if a person of color says that this offends them, then believe them. You don't explain why they shouldn't be offended. Like, I don't know. It's just, I don't, I don't get it. But I see what he did there, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Aunt Jemima underwent her most significant image change in 1989. Quaker Oats removed her head coverings, permed her hair, and gave her a pair of pearl earrings. Fancy. This made Aunt Jemima look like a professional working mom. In 1994, Gladys Knight did a campaign with Aunt Jemima to really lean into this new image. The campaign showed Gladys Knight taking care of her grandchildren. In response to the advertisement, novelist Alice Walker claimed that Aunt Jemima couldn't be updated because she was still rooted in slavery. Throughout the 1990s, the brand appeared to distance itself from its troubling past by partnering with the National Council of Negro Women, NCNW, for the Women of Wonder Award. Since 2016, Quaker Oats appeared more cognizant of Aunt Jemima's brand and her impact, they hired Dominique Wilburn, a black woman, as an executive assistant to rebrand Aunt Jemima. Some of her ideas were changing the name to Aunt Jay and depicting her with natural hair, making a new backstory that wasn't um, based off of slavery. <laughs> mm-hmm. She also suggested educating employees by teaching them about the negative consequences of slavery and releasing an apologetic letter about the company's history. But unfortunately, none of that ever happened. What? Okay. <laughs> so they hired this woman for her ideas and then were like, we're not going to do those ideas. Um, I think so. I mean, that's what I've seen. 
Right. It's probably not entirely clear why they didn't happen. Yeah. Um, so at this point, PepsiCo had incorporated Quaker Oats. They they had done that in 2001. Basically, all these corporations just keep buying each other and merging and yeah. positioning. So like, um, <laughs> so like Quaker Oats was a subcategory of PepsiCo. And then just like Aunt Jemima Mills was a subcategory of Quaker Oats. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. They just keep eating each other, basically. <laughs> yes. In 2017, Pepsi was accused of trivializing the Black Lives Matter movement with a commercial starring model Kendall Jenner. The commercial staged a protest, but if you watch it, it's really unclear what they're protesting. Um, There's like all these young and conventionally attractive people, you know, who have all these problems in their life. And of course, they're all very racially diverse and they're holding up signs like love and peace and join the conversation. But... The question that some viewers might have is like, what is the conversation about, right? It's really vague. The commercial shows Kendall Jenner at a modeling gig. She's at this shoot and she sees this march. She makes friendly eye contact with one of the protesters and he gives her a look like, come on, join us. And she then um, has this grand moment where she wipes off her lipstick and throws her modeling wig at, I kid you not, a black woman. And then she goes and joins the protests, and the marchers all come up to this line of police officers. And this is the part that upset people the most. Jenner takes a can of Pepsi and offers it to the police officers as like a gesture of peace or something. And as he accepts it, this other woman takes a photograph of Jenner like it's going to win a Pulitzer Prize. And the protesters erupt in cheers. So why do you think this commercial was offensive? <laughs> well, <laughs> it totally trivialized the Black Lives Matter movement, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it commercialized it. Um, and it used all of this imagery of a protest without any of the context, right? According to a New York Times article about this event, Pepsi, quote, appropriated imagery from serious protests to sell its product while minimizing the danger protesters encounter and the frustration they feel, end quote. Right. And also it's sort of like Kendall Jenner is like, here to save the day or something. <laughs> it's, I don't know. So um, the memes were so good for this. Yes. Oh, I'm sure they were. Yeah. Um, I, I saw them. I can't remember them at the moment, but I, I'm sure there was lots of, there was a lot of memeing going on during um, the summer of BLM. Um, so, Afterwards, both Jenner and PepsiCo publicly apologized, and they pulled the commercial. Um, you can still watch it if you search for it, um, at least pieces of it. People probably screenshotted it or whatever. Um, because of social media, this fiasco really spread. There were some good memes about it, as Carly mentioned. Um, and, I mean, this wasn't that long ago, and Kendall Jenner is one of the Kardashians. So some of us might not really see this ad campaign as historically significant or particularly related to what we're talking about today. Um, I don't know. I like tangents, so I'm all with it. The commercial itself might just seem kind of silly, and and it kind of is, but it, it shows perhaps the first time where the public overwhelmingly responded negatively to the Aunt Jemima Quaker Oats PepsiCo company. Like, people kind of rose up and were like, wait, no, this is not okay. Um, like, they'd been criticized before, mainly by black people, right? As Carly has written into this episode several instances of that. 
But because it had a big name like Jenner's attached to it, it was during this time of social media and probably because more people were aware of systemic racial issues at this point. It's probably a combination of those things as to why this was such an advertisement failure. Like, I wonder if 20 years ago it wouldn't have been seen as a failure. It would have just been an ad, right, <laughs> that, that didn't mean much to people maybe. Yeah, it was um, like it was almost like ripe for the time. Like it was, but like the opposite. It was like super uh, so tone deaf that it like the fact that it happened right then was what made it so bad. If that makes yeah, like the it the the storm was perfect mm-hmm, for that moment. Right. If yep. that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so if this Pepsi incident didn't retire Aunt Jemima, then what did? As we've hinted throughout this episode, something needed to happen to make Aunt Jemima's image incredibly unpopular and therefore unprofitable. Throughout this episode, we've talked about subtle tweaks and changes that Aunt Jemima company made, but it wasn't until last summer, 2020, when Aunt Jemima could finally retire. That's such a good point. Unpopular, so unpopular that it's unprofitable. Yeah. On May 25th, 2020, Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin arrested and killed a black man, George Floyd. Because George Floyd's murder was video recorded, Officer Chauvin's actions were clearly unjust, even to those who previously turned a blind eye to police brutality. Um, And social media made the video go viral, as you can imagine. Floyd's murder sparked a worldwide protest and conversation centered on police brutality against people of color. Because of a recently, quote, enlightened consumer base, leaders of businesses and corporations have also felt compelled to make changes in their structures and practices. For example, companies like Adidas made public commitments to donate proceeds to BLM organizations or to consciously hire Latinx slash POC people to their workforce. Other companies like Nike and Twitter declared Juneteenth an official employee holiday. HBO Max temporarily removed Gone with the Wind, the same movie we mentioned earlier in this episode. Companies like Ben and Jerry's and Warner Brothers Pictures included resources like a guide to dismantle white supremacy or a free rental of the movie Just Mercy, respectively. On June 15th, 2020, singer Kirby Lauren created and released a viral TikTok video criticizing Aunt Jemima's brand. Two days later, and coinciding with national protests against police brutality, Quaker Oats and PepsiCo finally announced their decision to retire Aunt Jemima. In tandem, other companies like Cream of Wheat, Uncle Ben's, and Lando Lakes have also chosen to retire racist stereotypes. Executives at PepsiCo learned their lesson from the tone-deaf Kendall Jenner commercial and want to avoid another PR disaster. The Aunt Jemima brand is now the Pearl Milling Company, which was actually the original name of the mill that Rutt and Underwood bought. So they could have just gone with that from the beginning, but whatever. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense. Despite a successful century and a half campaign with Aunt Jemima, she's no longer a profitable asset, but a liability. Quaker Oats and PepsiCo can't repackage her anymore. 
We, of course, touched on Nancy Green, the first black woman to act as Aunt Jemima. She tragically died in 1923 at the age of 89 when she was hit by a car 30 years after her Chicago exposition debut. That's horrible. Right. Um, Unfortunately, there isn't as much documentation about Green's life as there is about her brand persona. What we do know is that after her debut at the fair, she was offered a lifetime contract with Quaker Oats, and she traveled the country making appearances as Aunt Jemima. Green was also a philanthropist and a ministry leader in her church, Olivet Baptist Church, which is the oldest active black Baptist church in Chicago. According to researcher Romy Crawford, the huge irony about Nancy Green's situation was that she, quote, was playing a role, a derogatory type and caricature of black women, but in actuality, her actual mobility in so many ways defied the status of the problematic caricature type, end quote. Another irony is Green lived this very public life. However, her burial place was unmarked until recently. Sherry Williams, a historian at the Bronzeville Historical Society, has been working hard for about 15 years to preserve the history of Nancy Green. She was able to locate Green's burial plot with the Oak Woods Cemetery staff. However, because the cemetery had a policy that a descendant must approve of a headstone, Williams also had to do some genealogical research to find one of Green's distant living relatives. That was difficult because when Green died, she had already lost her husband and children. Eventually, she got approval when she connected with Nancy Green's great-great-nephew, Marcus Hayes. Unfortunately, though, when Williams reached out to the Quaker Oats Company to see if they'd support her, they responded that, quote, Nancy Green and Aunt Jemima aren't the same, that Aunt Jemima is a fictitious character, end quote. I wasn't able to find anything about Quaker Oats financially contributing to Green's headstone, and I'm guessing they didn't. I'm not so sure. Um, because Williams ended up creating an online fundraiser just to do that. That's so crappy. That would have been something just so nice and, like, relatively inexpensive for them to do. Right. Um, so if they didn't contribute, then it's sort of like, eh, you suck. I don't know. That's stupid. (laughs) Um, There have been other Aunt Jemima actresses shortly after the rebranding announcement more than a year ago. Some of the descendants of those actresses have spoken up. Vera Harris, who was the great niece of the Aunt Jemima actress Lillian Richard, expressed her pride for her relative and her work. She said, quote, I just don't want that erased from my family history because it's almost like erasing a part of me, end quote. The family of another Aunt Jemima actress, Anna Short Harrington, filed a $2 to $3 billion lawsuit against the company for appropriating her image in 2014. Their claim was denied. However, the great-grandson of Harrington, Larnell Evans Sr., said after the rebranding announcement, quote, This comes as a slap in the face. She worked 25 years doing it. She improved their product. What they're trying to do is ludicrous, end quote. So, Carly, what do you think about this that the the families of these actresses were unhappy with the branding or rebranding yeah yeah so my opinion about this has actually shifted since I have done more research for this episode um mostly from looking at Nancy Green's situation uh like to me it doesn't feel okay to have Aunt Jemima as the face of the brand but at the same time it also feels wrong to wipe away the history of Nancy Green and Lillian Richard and 
Anna Harrington and like even, you know, other black women like mm-hmm. Hattie McDonald, right? Like her role, like, I don't know. Uh, what's difficult is that I think there's a difference between history and memorialization, right? And I feel uncomfortable memorializing the brand, right? Um, but it, it, it seems like a real shame to just erase these actual real women mm-hmm. who were in the history. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh-huh. And I think you're right. There's there's a difference between memorializing and um, uh, praising and worshiping uh, this brand and remembering the history of the brand. Remembering the history of the brand is a great thing, right? I mean, we're historians. We think... All, the history of all things should be remembered. <laughs> um, so I think you're right that that's kind of a good distinction to make. Um, scholars A. Ward and Lorraine Fuller said it pretty succinctly in this quote. It is more of a matter of how people are included rather than that they have been included. Often the images of black people see of themselves are either negative, offensive, or simply not there, end quote. The continual negative depiction of black people, especially when it's disguised as harmless or benign with the case of Aunt Jemima, subconsciously affects how we interact and view black people. Yeah. Um, And with that being said, I'd like to plug that the Bronzeville Historical Society is doing an Aunt Jemima exhibit right now. Um, And from what I've seen online, they um, are trying to focus more on the actual women who acted as Aunt Jemima, including Nancy Green. Um, it'll be open until the end of the year, uh, 2021. So if you are in the Chicago area during that time, um, I recommend going and checking it out. Um, we'll leave a link in it on our blog so you can look at it. Yes. We can learn from Aunt Jemima and her retirement how our culture and values are reflected through advertising. One of the most important things we can learn from Aunt Jemima is how ordinary, seemingly harmless things like pancake mix can represent complex racial and social issues. If we aren't willing to examine a box on our grocery shelf, what else are we potentially missing? Exactly. It's a good question. Thank you all for listening today. Yeah, check out our blog and uh, you can find a transcript for this episode at digpodcast.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at dig underscore history. And if you're not already a patron and you want to become one, you can go to patreon.com slash dig podcast and you can find our Patreon there to help support our small little podcast (laughs) thank you carly for writing this episode and for recording it with me i look forward to including it on our feed thanks bye bye Save big money at Menards.
Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save